Good evening. Don Zucker goes to jail. Assange goes to court. A Sputnik moment and more from the hearings into the killing of Eric Garner with these and other stories. I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. As environmental and human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger uh, was ordered to jail today, Donziger was seen on social media hugging his son before his surrender coming after a years-long legal battle with the oil company Chevron and 813 days of house arrest. On Democracy Now! this morning, Donziger said, Chevron is trying to use me as a weapon to intimidate activists and their lawyers. I was prosecuted by a private law firm, Seward and Kissel, appointed by a federal judge after the U.S. government declined to prosecute me. And the judge never disclosed that the law firm had Chevron as a client. So essentially, I'm being prosecuted by a Chevron law firm, a partner in a Chevron law firm, a private law firm, um, who deprived me of my liberty. I'm the only person ever charged with this offense held pre-trial uh, at home or in, or in prison. Never happened before for even a day. It's over 800 days. So, you know, this is the first corporate prosecution in U.S. history. I, I have never seen a case like this, nor have other legal experts that work with me. And, you know, we just think, you know, to restore the rule of law as regards Steve Donziger and the people of Ecuador, um, this case has to be stopped. WBI's Rebecca Miles has more on the story. The environmental and human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger was ordered to report to jail this afternoon after a years-long legal battle with the oil company Chevron and 813 days of house arrest. Donziger's legal team had filed a 100-page bail motion on Tuesday, which was denied the same day. Donziger in a tweet said, quote, this is not due process of law, nor is it justice, end quote. What this means is Donziger will go to federal prison while his legal team appeals his conviction sentence. In 2011, Donsko won an $18 billion settlement against Chevron on behalf of 30,000 indigenous people in Ecuador for dumping 16 billion gallons of oil into their ancestral lands in the Amazon. Since the landmark case, Donziger has faced a series of legal attacks from Chevron and a New York federal judge who has employed a private law firm linked to the oil company to prosecute him. Earlier this month, he was sentenced to six months in federal prison for contempt of court and his request for bail pending his appeal was denied. Amnesty International and the United Nations human rights advocates along with several U.S. lawmakers are calling for Donziger's immediate release. Rebecca Miles, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Rebecca. And in more news from Washington, climate change was one of the subjects at a GOP press conference on energy policy. It included a surprising statement for Republicans. Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming says he and his fellow Republicans believe climate change is real and that humans are contributing to it. We all believe climate change is real. We believe that mankind is certainly contributing to that. And we also believe that if China and India don't do things... Even if we were to go to zero emissions in the United States, the global emissions continue to go up. The U.S. emissions have been dropping for the last 15 years. And we also believe that nuclear energy has to be a part of this mix. We needed all of the energy supply needs. And we want to make energy as clean as we can, as fast as we can, and do it in ways that don't increase costs for American families. John Barrasso. 
Meanwhile, another well-known activist facing stiff punishment for his journalism is WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. He was back in court in London today facing an appeal of a judge's ruling denying him extradition to this country to face espionage charges. In other words, the U.S. government is trying to appeal the decision to move on with the extradition. Rebecca Miles has been following the proceedings and files this report. At the High Court of Justice in London today, the Crown Prosecution Service argued five grounds for appeal, among them that the lower court district judge, Vanessa Baritza, had made a mistake in her denying the extradition request for Julian Assange. Queen's counsel James Lewis for the prosecution argued in the morning session that the U.S. had not had an opportunity to present assurances to the lower court that Assange would not be put in extreme isolation if extradited to the U.S., that the lower court judgment was not based on Assange's current risk of suicide but on a prediction of what would happen if extradited and that the defence was wrong to dismiss the US assurances as untrustworthy. The bench interjected, asking Lewis to answer the defence's contention that the prosecution should have made their assurances that Assange would not be put into harsh special administrative measures if sent to the US before Baritza issued her judgment in January 2021 or even during the extradition hearing in September 2020. Lewis told the court that it was their position that as it was highly unlikely Assange would ever be put in SAMS, so the opportunity never arose and the assurances could be given at any time during the proceedings. Lewis also told the court that Baritza should have warned the prosecution that SAMS would figure in her judgment. He rejected the defence's claims that the assurances would not be trusted. He went on to say that the assurances that Assange would not be put under SAMS were conditional and if Assange endangered U.S. national security while incarcerated, he could then be moved into SAMS. Lewis spent quite some time going over the details about predicting suicide and how serious were Assange's thoughts about suicide and his mental state, suggesting Assange was a malingerer and disputed the defence witness testimony that Assange was severely depressed with psychotic episodes and was at a great risk of killing himself if he was extradited. Once or twice we saw Julian Assange from a room in Belmarsh Prison via video link. He wore a face mask, a black necktie and a white long-sleeved dress shirt. He looked very thin and kept blinking at the camera. In a brief hour at the end of the day, Edward Fitzgerald, QC for Julian Assange, swept aside arguments that the lower court judge had followed a biased expert witness and Assange was faking his suicidal urges. Fitzgerald defended Judge Baritza's ruling not to extradite Assange because of a high risk of suicide in an inhumane prison. He said... Her judgment was, quote, careful, reasoned and considered and told the court to respect the findings of facts from the judge of first instance who lived through the hearing, adding, quote, I sometimes wonder whether my learned friend is reading the same judgment we are. The appeals hearing continues Thursday. Rebecca Miles, WBAI News, New York. Thanks again, Rebecca.
In related news, Queen Elizabeth won't be attending the COP26 climate change summit in Glasgow following medical advice to rest. The 95-year-old monarch underwent preliminary medical checks in hospital last Wednesday after canceling a visit to Northern Ireland. She resumed public engagements on Tuesday by meeting ambassadors via video link from Windsor Castle. The Queen was due to travel to Scotland as part of a string of COP26 engagements by senior members of the royal family including the Prince of Wales, the Duchess of Cornwall, and the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. And the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, referred to China's recent test of a hypersonic weapons system as nearly a Sputnik moment. Sputnik, the first satellite in space, was launched on October 4th, 1957. It was the subject of a CBS television report two days later. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. Sputnik changed the arms race from a contest over bombers to missiles and a new era of competition between the United States and Soviet Union. Like the Sputnik launch, analysts have said China's test could launch a continuing technological race between the superpowers into hyperdrive. General Milley spoke about it last week. Uh, what we saw was a very significant event of a test of a hypersonic weapon system, and it is very concerning. I think I saw in some of the newspapers that they use the term Sputnik moment. I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that. So it's a very significant technological event that occurred or test that occurred by the Chinese. We're in one of the most significant changes in what I call the character of war. But today, with the introduction of precision munitions, the ability to see all over the world, artificial intelligence, robotics, hypersonics, all of these things together, this is an enormous change in the character of war. We're going to have to adjust our military going forward. General Mark Milley, he's the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Last week, the Financial Times reported that China had conducted not one, but two tests of a new hypersonic weapons system, which analysts said can deliver payloads extremely quickly, evade modern radar systems, and likely far outstrip current U.S. capabilities. And in Washington, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi declared today that Democrats are in pretty good shape on President Joe Biden's sweeping domestic plan, but hopes for a breakthrough quickly faded when a pivotal Democratic senator panned a new billion tax to help pay for the $1.75 trillion package. Biden's big proposal of social services and climate change programs ran into stubborn new setbacks, chief among them how to pay for it all. A tax on billionaires could be scrapped after Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia objected. The billionaires tax proposal had been designed to win over another Democratic holdout, Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona. Manchin and Sinema and mansion and cinema hold enormous power, essentially deciding whether or not Biden will be able to deliver on the Democrats' major campaign promise. In the 50-50 Senate, Biden needs all Democrats' support with no votes to spare. And the director of the Institute for Policy Studies, Criminalization of Race and Poverty Project is Karen Dolan. She says the Build Back Better plan has been constantly shrinking to the point where it won't be as transformative as progressives had hoped, putting pressure on Democrats to win a bigger majority in Congress. We're now looking at something like 1.7 trillion, thanks merely to two senators, Manchin from West Virginia and Cinema from Arizona. The 
historic chance we had at transformative change has been really dramatically curtailed. However, even if we can if we can get this 1.7 trillion passed, which I believe it it will, it still will be one of the biggest advances to try to address some of the racial equity and income inequity in the United States in decades. If the Biden administration proves more popular than the pundits are calling and he's reelected, or if the Democrats in next year hold on to the House and Senate, will there be a part two, do you think? There is such a tight margin of Democratic hold, both in the House and the Senate, but especially in a 50-50 Senate. So people will have heard Joe Biden say when there's a 50-50 split in the Senate, each and every senator is a president. Is this a reversal of the Trump tax cut over two years ago? We wanted to raise the corporate tax and corporations across the country had already written that into their budgets <laughs> of having those raised. And Kirsten Cinema said no. So President Cinema put, put the nicks on that. But she is behind a billionaire's tax and she is behind a corporate minimum tax of 15% for those large companies who end up paying zero in taxes on unrealized gains of their investments as well as incomes. We're talking about the tiny fraction. It only affects about 700 Americans. Those 700 families have a lot of power. Here at the Institute for Policy Studies, we did participate in the recent Pandora papers that were released that details how these mega wealthy dynastic families hide their dynastic wealth and shield it from taxation and all kinds of things, many of which are legal, but shouldn't be. And so these couple of taxes would address some of that. We want those to pass. Senator Manchin today said he wasn't keen on the billionaire tax because he thinks it's unfair to billionaires. And he might be the only person in the United States who feels that way, except for perhaps some of those 700 billionaires. What possible interest could he have? The original $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan that all Democrats, except for Manchin and Cinema, agreed to, would have created over uh, 17,000 new jobs in West Virginia. And this reduced plan is something like 7,000 or less. Over 88,000 people in West Virginia who could have taken paid leave each year, they're at risk of not being able to do that. So it is really crazy that both Mansion and Cinema, their constituents, especially in West Virginia, they would benefit almost more than any other state in the union. The press reports focus on infighting between Democrats, when in reality it's two senators against all the other Democrats. Almost everyone except those 700 billionaires would have benefited. So now we're facing 1.7 trillion, but even if that gets through, that is gonna help the, the poorest and low income up through the middle class. Back to your point, if Democrats are able to hold on to the trifecta they currently have and increase their majorities to take away this slash and burn power of mansion and cinema, then they can use this as a foothold and a kind of a down payment to realize the rest of the promises of the Democratic agenda. 
And that is Karen Dolan. She's the director of the Institute for Policy Studies, Criminalization of Race and Poverty Project. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And the men shot by Kyle Rittenhouse in August 2020 can potentially be referred to at his trial as rioters or looters. A Wisconsin judge said that on Monday while reiterating his long-held view that attorneys should not use the word victim. Victim is a loaded, loaded word. And I think alleged victim is a cousin to it. Let the evidence show what the evidence shows. And if the evidence shows that any or more than one of these people were engaging in arson, rioting, or looting, then I'm not going to tell the defense they can't call them that. Defense lawyers maintain the young man acted in self-defense when he fatally shot two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The protesters were shot during a demonstration against the police shooting of a black man. Rittenhouse was among armed civilians who said they were there to protect businesses after nights of arson and looting. Rittenhouse is charged with felony homicide related to the shooting and killing of Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum and felony attempted homicide for wounding Gage Grossenkreutz during Protests that followed the police shooting of Jacob Blake in August 2020. The shooting came after then-President Donald Trump encouraged vigilantes to take it on their own to stop people they called looters. And the long-delayed hearings into the events surrounding the chokehold killing of Eric Garner on July 17, 2014, entered its third day today. And a broader picture has begun to emerge of the days, weeks, and months leading to the moment when former police officer Daniel Pantaleo put Eric Garner in a fatal chokehold. Don't worry, because he was just sitting here. I just I came here. Sitting here. None of my business. I'm afraid break out. Stop. Yes. Don't say you can put it up on me. That's all right. The people that's fighting is going walk away? Are you serious? Is your way a hard way from what? Every time you see me, you want to mess with me. I'm tired of it. It's time today. You got right here, forcibly trying to lock somebody up for breaking up a fight. Everybody standing here, they told you I didn't do nothing. Today's hearing included a step-by-step analysis of the actions of police officer D'Amico. The video you just heard, the audio you just heard was sourced from that video, which was taken by a friend of Eric Garner's, Ramsey Orta, who was, uh, you could hear, being pushed back by police in the background at a news conference during a lunch break in the hearing which cannot be recorded by the media under court rulings. I spoke with several of the people from the Justice Com- Committee, the lawyers who were involved, in, and uh, also the mother of Eric Garner. I am sick and tired of listening to the lies by D'Amico. For three days, he's been lying. He's been contradicting himself. These officers should not be on the force. They should have been fired immediately. Lieutenant Bannon was never disciplined for saying it wasn't a big deal. He tried to explain it away, saying he was concerned for his officers. Concerned for his officers? What was the concern? My son lay dead on the ground and he said it wasn't a big deal. 
Well, Officer Bannon, it was a big deal to me. That was my son. You had no sympathy or empathy for him, but I do. That's why I'm bringing this from day one to year seven. Our next speaker is Casey Foster from Make the Road New York, who is also a petitioner in the judicial inquiry. The mayor and commissioner have not made any substantive changes to hold these officers responsible or officers that have followed in other tragic cases in the city. At one point, D'Amico said he didn't see a need to intervene. Should he have intervened and why didn't he intervene in your opinion? Gideon, would you like to take this one too? His testimony was, I didn't intervene because according to his version of events, he never saw a chokehold. His testimony was what it was. I think he should have intervened. Part of the ultimate issue in the inquiry is to lay the facts out there so that there can be a more complete record about the facts and circumstances. The policies that we put into the record from the police department say that if a fellow officer sees that an NYPD member is using force that's clearly excessive, they have a duty to intervene. The question is, was Pantaleo using excessive force? I obviously think the answer to in using the chokehold, and in other ways, I think the answer to that is yes. It's a question that we're not going to answer, that the testimony is going to create a record about, and then the conclusions are going to be for people to draw. And Was it lawful? If he, in fact, observed a violation of the law, then the then an arrest would be lawful. We had testimony today about where he allegedly made some observations from, and you're going to have to draw your own conclusions about whether he could see what he said he saw from all that distance away. What does he say he saw exactly? What you see in this photo is you have to kind of cross the street and go past the corner onto that block. D'Amico is saying that he saw Eric Garner sell a cigarette and get money for it from this far away. You cannot see anything. You can barely make out the model. You can't even see the model of any of those cars that are over there, let alone see a human being standing there selling a tiny, tiny cigarette. The only person on the planet who has said he ever saw Eric Garner sell a cigarette is NYPD officer Justin D'Amico, who was this far away. We know that he did not see Eric from that distance. He can't even really see He wears glasses. He don't even know what his vision is. So how could he see someone selling a cigarette or passing money 500 feet away? Just to give you some numbers, it's like four or 500 feet away. That's what was established during the CCRB prosecution of Pantaleos. What we're saying is that this was an illegal stop. The lawyers may not be able to say this, but unquestionably, all the petitioners are saying this was an illegal stop. The first day of testimony featured NYPD Lieutenant Christopher Bannon. Bannon testified he was summoned to a meeting at police headquarters in Lower Manhattan in March of 2014, four months before Garner's killing, and was told by NYPD leadership to crack down on the sale of untaxed cigarettes in his precinct. He said the day of Garner's death, he saw a crowd of people on the Bay Street sidewalk. He called his officers to the scene, even though he wasn't able to see any evidence of a crime being committed from his car some distance away. He didn't see any action. Actual cigarette sales, asked Alvin Bragg, one of several attorneys working on behalf of Carr and the other petitioners. No, sir, Bannon responded. (laughs) 
And that's some of the news for Wednesday, October 27, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Rachel Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was the WBAI Evening News, heard daily at 6 p.m. Stay tuned for economic